If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. That'll be our text this Lord's Day as we continue to walk through the book of Exodus together. I know we've got some family here today for Mother's Day who might not be here each week. So just to kind of catch you up on where we are, in the book of Exodus you have the story of God rescuing His people. God's people were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. and God, So God sent a rescuer to him to them, a deliverer named Moses. Uh, He then leads the people out of Egypt. God brings great calamity and destruction to Egypt so that Pharaoh will let the people go. And then God leads His people on a journey to the land of promise. Now, as they are entering into that journey, God is going to give His people the law. And so the Ten Commandments, we have that in Exodus 20. And so the place we're at now in Exodus 19 is right before God gives the Ten Commandments and gives the law to His people. And He is preparing His people to hear from Him. And so we have this encounter that we started looking at last Lord's Day where God has come to Mount Sinai. He has invited Moses up the mountain and He is talking to Moses and having Moses then communicate with the people. What we've seen in the book of Exodus is that Moses is the mediator. He speaks to the people on behalf of God. He speaks to God on behalf of the people. And so where we're picking up today in Exodus 19 is with verse 16, where now uh, Moses has gone down the mountain. He's prepared the people to meet with God. And that's where we pick up. And so we're going to look at Exodus 19, verses 16 through 25 today. And because this is the Holy Word of God, and we revered as such here at Bloomfield Baptist, if you are able to stand, if you will, as I read the text for us this Lord's Day. And so with that introduction now, we pick up in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16, where we read this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. And a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. If you would pray with me. Father, this is Your Word. And it may be a bit confusing to some today. It may have elements of it that that all of us need to better understand. So Father, through the power of Your Spirit, would You help us to better understand what's taking place here in Exodus 19 and how that relates to us here today at Bloomfield Baptist Church? 
we ask that you would do this work and that you might help us to see the gospel in it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we've already mentioned, today is Mother's Day. You, you may know a little about the history of Mother's Day. Uh, this day came about in the early 1900s. Uh, it came into creation because of one young lady, Anna Jarvis, and her desire to see a day that honored mothers. Uh, Anna grew up in church, and her mother was her Sunday school teacher. And on one occasion, her mother taught a lesson about mothers in the Bible. And then after she taught that lesson, she prayed that, that the church might better understand and recognize how God had used mothers uh, for His glory. And so young Anna heard this prayer and began to think, even as a young lady, about how they could honor mothers, uh, specifically in the context of the church, on a specific Lord's Day. And so on May 12, 1907, uh, Anna honored her mother by wearing a white carnation to church that morning. And that caught on. And with Anna's commitment, Mother's Day became an official national holiday in 1914. And perhaps some of you have heard about that before, but maybe you don't know what happened after that. See, soon after Mother's Day became a national holiday, uh, it quickly moved from carnations in church to uh, a lot of commercialization, like many holidays today. Now, there were cards, there were gifts, you were encouraged to, to show your affection, your love for your mother by, by buying her something. And this really disturbed Anna. Uh, she didn't intend for this day to be a day of commercialization. And so, not many years after it became an official holiday, she began to protest Mother's Day. And in fact, she fought, filed a lawsuit in 1923 to get the, national, the federal government to stop recognizing Mother's Day. She would picket Mother's Day. She was actually arrested for disturbing the peace while protesting the celebration of the very day that she had led to the creation of being celebrated. Why was she so frustrated? Why would she protest this day so much? Or in her own words, Anna said this, This is not what I intended. I wanted it to be a day of sentiment, not a day of profit. <laughs> What we see is very much the same today, isn't it? Mother's Day, uh, as much as we want it to be a day of sentiment, uh, there's also a lot of profit involved. Uh, for some of you, perhaps you found yourself at Kroger or Walmart last night. It looked like there had been the Kentucky Derby right through the flower aisle there, just trying to find one bouquet still together and try to find that, that one card that, that, that kind of still fit it's a day that is celebrated. We love to be with our moms, celebrate our moms, remember our moms, but it's also a day of great commercialization. It's come far from what it was created to be. And that seems to be the case with so many holidays today. You know, they start out as one thing, but then as the generations go on, they become something altogether different. And so from time to time, we need reminders of why it was we're celebrating the day to begin with. It's sort of like the Charlie Brown Christmas special. If you've seen that, you know, there's that, that scene at the end of it where Linus comes on stage and drops his blanket and, and tells Charlie Brown and everybody else what the true meaning of Christmas is because it had been lost. Well, we need that in so many ways in our culture today. And not just with holidays. We need it especially when it comes to the church and religion and faith. So many of us have drifted far away from the foundation of what God intended His relationship with us to look like. 
you talk about an area of great commercialization and great profit. <laughs> there are so many who have twisted the things in Scripture. So many who, in order to profit themselves or their own agenda, have led many astray. And so uh, there's times that we need to return to the Word of God to understand better what is the foundation of our faith. What does the Scripture truly teach us? Rather than just look for people to tell us what we want to hear. See, the Scripture actually tells us that the day would come when we would gather for ourselves people who would just tell us what we want to hear. And in fact, Paul refers to it this way in instructing Timothy. He says, the day will come when people having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You translate that into our modern context, and I believe what Paul is saying here to Timothy is the day is going to come when you're going to go to churches and preachers are going to tell you what you want to hear so you'll keep coming back. And friends, I'm not here today to scratch your ears or mine. I'm not here today really to bring us comfort in our passions and desires and pursuits. What we should all be here for today is to, to try to seek an understanding, a better understanding, a true understanding of what God's Word actually teaches us about God and what God's Word actually says to us about us and, and how it is then we are to relate with God. See, as we saw last week, God shows us very clearly in Exodus 19 that we are not to come to God on our terms. He sets the terms for how we can come to Him. And so I just want to walk through this passage today and point out some truths that we see that they may not be very popular in our culture today, and yet I feel they are very much based on what God's Word tells us. Beginning with this first truth we see in this Scripture. Point one there in your outline is this. God is terrifyingly holy. God is terrifyingly holy. And that may not be the way that you've heard God referred to. And yet, that's very much the picture we see here at Exodus 19. Now, notice what takes place. Now, God has told Moses to gather the people together. He has set a boundary around the mountain. He's already told Moses that if the people cross that boundary, even if animals cross that boundary, the instruction then to God's people is to pick up stones or to get a bow and arrow and to kill those people or kill those animals. This is pretty severe. God is saying that His holiness is going to come down on this mountain and there's a barrier, there's a boundary there between His holiness and man's sinfulness. Man can't just approach Him on his own terms. And so then notice the scene here. God descends on the mountain in thunder and in lightning. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond when there's thunder and lightning? Anybody run towards it? I mean, I know there's some odd people out there, storm chasers. Another word for people like that. Crazy. Not right. I mean, there's people who want to run towards those things, but for the rest of us who weren't dropped on our head as children, what do we do? We move away from the danger, don't we? We seek shelter. We don't run towards the storm we choose to find shelter in the midst of the storm. I remember a number of years ago, Sandy and I had purchased a home in Bowling Green, and uh, there was a, a thunderstorm that came. And when that thunderstorm came, I think it was the first storm that came when we lived in that house, as the storm was kind of rolling in, we had a knock on the door, 
and opened up the door, and it was our neighbor. Now, we had met our neighbor, but I wasn't quite prepared for what took place next. She just came in and sat down on our couch. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And then as we talked, we learned that she was deathly afraid of thunderstorms. And her arrangement with the last family that lived there was that whenever there was a thunderstorm, she'd come over to their house and waited out with them. Well, we didn't quite have the arrangement. We didn't realize it was in the contract with the house, but, but we got that arrangement real quick. Now, now, maybe you don't go seeking shelter uninvited in your neighbor's home when the storm comes, but the storm makes us cautious. And in fact, storms, when they're really violent, when they're enormous storms, thunder and hail and hurricanes, those are things we seek shelter from. And the picture we have here in Exodus 19 of the presence of God on the mountain is one of this immense storm that has descended on the mountain to the point that the very mountain itself is trembling. In fact, the Scripture tells us that, that all the people there, they're trembling as well. And that can be translated in the Hebrew as they were utterly frightened. They are scared here of the presence of God. It says that the Lord descended, verse 18, in, in fire. The writer of Hebrews kind of gives us even more detail on what takes place here. In Hebrews 12, he says that God came in a blazing fire and there was darkness and there was gloom. He says that when God speaks in Exodus 19... That the hearers, the people, beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He goes on in verse 21 to say, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And so the picture we have in Exodus 19 is one of a holy, pure, righteous God who terrifies people. Let me just ask you, is that the picture we have of God in our culture today? And I don't think it is. I think in our culture today at large, people tend to view God kind of as this wise old sage, this wise old man, maybe a supernatural Santa, you know, when when we really need something, we just go and, and ask Him. Usually the picture of God in our culture and our world is a God who is overly approachable, a God that you can come to in any way that you choose to, a God that you can worship through nature or experiences. A God that is not confined to any one particular religion or dogma or doctrine, but who you can approach on your terms in whatever way you want to find Him. Maybe a God who scratches our itching ears. Is that the picture of God we have in the Scripture? Is it that Exodus 19 just presents this skewed picture of God? Or, or is this the picture we have of God throughout His Word? Moses in Deuteronomy 4, along with the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, refer to God as a consuming fire. Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 refers to God as a bear and as a lion who's actually waiting to pounce on him and devour him. Jacob, in Genesis 32, we see God as a wrestler there who will not let go of Jacob until he cripples him. That there's a picture we see of God throughout His Word that is far different 
than the picture we see in his culture in the culture. And that's why the way people respond to God in his word is so radically different than people respond to God in our culture today. For example, Genesis 17, Abraham encounters God and the scripture says he fell on his face. You just think about that for a second. I mean, it's one thing to fall on your knees, but to fall on your face? And that's a common response to people who encounter God. Ezekiel 1, you read Ezekiel 1, and it doesn't even make entirely a lot of sense as Ezekiel is trying to describe the greatness and the glory and the holiness of what he's experiencing. But what is clear is this. He says, I fell on my face. Isaiah 6, Isaiah comes into the presence of God and he immediately is overwhelmed with his guilt. He says, woe is me. For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And so I think we see a great contrast here between how the Scripture presents the character of God to us and how our culture presents the character of God to us. Because in our culture, God is this ambiguous, higher power who gives us the warm fuzzies. But in the Scripture, in Exodus 19, we see here that that God is terrifyingly holy. And the great problem that then presents us with is that, that we are not holy. And therefore, that there is a, a distance, a, a gulf, a barrier between us and God. And that's what we see in Exodus 19 as well. Yeah, that brings us to the second point there in your outlines. This truth we see here that, that man is wickedly sinful. And so we have this picture that God is terrifyingly holy and man is wickedly sinful. Notice the contrast between the two here. The Lord calls Moses up the mountain and then he immediately tells him to go down the mountain to warn the people, listen, they can't come up this mountain. And Moses says, oh yeah, we remember, you, you gave us this boundary, God. And so then there's this conversation, this reminder to us that if anyone tries to cross that boundary, notice the language there. The Lord's going to break out against him. Is that how the culture sees God today? <laughs> is it God who actually judges sin? Is that how our culture sees themselves today? As men and women who are, who are wickedly sinful? Now, I've heard many people refer to that this, this way, refer to, well, you know, Richard, Pastor, you're, you're just talking here about God in the Old Testament, and God in the Old Testament is just kind of, he's just kind of mean, and he's angry, and he's wiping people out, and there's all this fire and thunder and lightning, but man, I tell you what, I don't know about that mountain, but give me, give me Jesus on a mountain, you know? Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, you know, God in the New Testament, he, he's so loving and he's so gracious. I mean, Jesus in that sermon tells us to love our enemies. He tells us in that sermon to, to give to those in need, not to be anxious, not to judge. I like that picture of God better than that Old Testament picture of God. Well, friends, there's, there's a great flaw in that thinking. One is, for those of us who believe that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament are different gods, it reveals that we haven't really read the Old and New Testament because we see consistency throughout both. And especially if we look at the Sermon on the Mount 
as this gracious picture of just all grace and all love and it's all good and there's no judgment, then we've probably never read the Sermon on the Mount. Because what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is He actually takes the Old Testament law and He says, for example, well, you've been told not to murder. I mean, that, that's a good standard, isn't it? I've talked to many people about their faith. I've often asked the question, you know, when you die, if you were to stand before God, and He said, well, I shall let you into heaven, what would you say? And a common answer, maybe one you've thought of, is, well, I, I know I haven't been perfect, but I've tried to be, I, I've never killed anybody. That's usually comforting when I'm talking to them. Glad to know you're not a murderer. You know, I'm, I'm going to make it out of Zaxby's today. You ain't killed anybody. Isn't it interesting that Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said you shouldn't kill, but if you've called somebody a fool, you're a murderer. Well, now we're a bunch of convicts, aren't we? I mean, just on the way to church this morning. Probably all kinds of murder taking place. Maybe you didn't say it out loud. Maybe it was just in your head. Maybe it's while you were trying to park. Maybe somebody cut you off. Maybe you were quadruple homicide this morning. You know? So Jesus doesn't take the Old Testament and say, oh yeah, God was so angry back there. Let's just talk about love and grace. Jesus says, oh, you thought this was the standard? No, 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 no. The standard's much higher than this. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you need to be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Now, how's that for a standard? Tim Keller, when he was preaching on this very passage, he shared a very helpful illustration. It was from a paper that had been written years before by an English professor at Texas A&M, Virginia Stem Owens. And what Virginia Stem Owens did was she gave her students the task of reading the Sermon on the Mount and writing about it. She made the assumption, being in the South, being in Texas, that most of her students were probably at least familiar enough with the Sermon on the Mount. They, they would recognize it, they'd understand it. Just from a, from a perspective of literature, she said, read this and then just give me your reactions to it. Universally, her students hated it. They could not stand it when they read it. This is what a couple of them said. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect. And no one is. Another student said this, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery. That's the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I've ever heard. And so she goes on to describe these statements and basically says what she found is that these students had absolutely no exposure to the Sermon on the Mount and that was actually helpful because then they were able to read it very much in the context that it was first given. That they weren't filtering it through all this cultural Christianity. They weren't filtering it through all types of distortions about what had been taught about Jesus. They were just reading it as it was, and they did not like it. And she wrote this. Finally, biblical illiteracy has come to the point where people are able to respond to Jesus without filtering through 2,000 years of cultural haze. Honest, ignorant ears hear it as it is. And it's terrifying. Because it's a picture far more terrifying 
than smoke and thunder and lightning. It's a picture of a God whose standard is righteousness and holiness given to a people who know they are neither. Now, you might be thinking this morning, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm not that bad. You know? <laughs> I mean, isn't that kind of how we respond to God's holiness and the standard of Scripture? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not that bad. I mean, just think, for example, for a second. Think of how much time we spend trying to convince everyone around us that we're better than we actually already are. But think how much time and effort goes into just trying to tell the world that we've got it all together. I know some of you are too spiritual for Facebook, but Pastor Nick tells me about it all the time. And my favorite, and and again, I, I'm not I'm not judging here because Jesus told us not to. But I ran 5.7 miles this morning. I ate the whole box of donuts. Sat down and watched the news and ended up watching four hours of reality TV. Not going to put that on my status, am I? This is Pastor Nick talking, not me. I mean, think about if our status to the world was the reality of our hearts. Sat through a long sermon, wished he would end soon, very hungry. Maybe some of y'all put that, I don't know, but. We go to so much effort to convince the world that we're better than we actually are when we know in our hearts there's a problem. And what we do is we tend to look at our heart and we tend to just look around and say, well, I'm not that bad. So, so let's just go there for a second. Let's, let's see, are, are, are we as good as we think we are? Let's just take the subject of truth. Are we honest people? I would guess that a lot of us would probably say, you know, yeah, I try to be an honest person. I read a study just this week from the University of Massachusetts that found this. 60% of adults cannot have a 10-minute conversation without lying at least once. That's, of course, no one in here, is it? You know. Another study, this is helpful on Mother's Day. Another study found that 86% of people lie to their parents on a regular basis. Now again, you know, we're in the 14%. It's all those other churches this morning. They're, they get the lying kids, don't they? 40% of people lie on their resumes. And, and if you're young and considering dating online, here's a helpful one for you. 90% of people who date online lie on their profile. Now consider these statistics with this in mind. What percentage of the people lie when asked about how often they lie? And, you know, we tend to think about lying kind of in stages. Well, that's, that's just a little lie. That's just kind of a little white lie. That's not, that's not that bad, is it? I mean, come on, Pastor. We all, you know, nobody's completely honest, you know. How's this dress look? Oh, great. Yeah, it's trying to get us in trouble. But the standard really isn't what I think of lying or what you think of lying. It's what does God think of lying. So what does God think of lying? Proverbs chapter 12. God says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. 
Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates, and of those, a lying tongue. Now again, that's the mean God of the Old Testament, isn't it? What about the New Testament? Give us some of that gracious Jesus. Matthew 15, Jesus says what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that's what defiles us. It says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft. And a false witness, that word's a liar. Revelation 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers. Now we're good on that, aren't we? The mur- you know, I should be in heaven because I haven't killed. They're the murderers. They should go to hell. I'm good with this. But he goes on. The sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters. They said, and all liars... <laughs> So he kind of emphasizes like in every single one of the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because we lie. And we may be able to come up with excuses all day long, but, but the very nature of our heart, it convinces us, friends, we're not perfect and we're not righteous. And we then can agree with the Scripture says, none, none, not even one are righteous. I mean, if we give an invitation right now and say, okay, we just, we just want the people who've never told a lie to come down front. And we're going to keep singing until they do. Woohoo! I'd sit down. I couldn't come down front. No, we, we, we see that the Scripture is very clear here to us. That, that we're all sinful and where we have to be careful here is that in our sin what we often do is we try to make ourselves feel better by just looking to the person next to us and comparing ourselves to them and we can always find somebody who's struggling more than we can can't we you know so if you want to feel good about yourself just find somebody more messed up than you and then you can look at them and then you can feel pretty good you know well, I messed up, but man, I didn't mess up as I did. But, but we need to understand two things there. First is, while we're looking at that person as the one more messed up, somebody's looking at us as the more messed up. And the second thing is this. When we become the standard, we also become the excuse. And here's what I mean by that. I, I've met all kinds of people who use people as an excuse for why they don't want to have anything to do with God. Years ago, different city, different church, met a guy in the store, invited him to come to church. He sounded interested. Then I told him what church I went to. He said, I'll never step foot in that church. Oh, why? Let's just say, Pastor, you've got somebody in your church who's a total hypocrite. I kind of thought about it. I said, which one? I got to correct you, sir. We got a whole church full of hypocrites. I mean, just let me be clear here. If you're here this morning, especially as a guest, and this is your idea that, that well, this, you know, I, I know so-and-so, I know what they're doing. I had a bunch of, if you're thinking somehow that this is a group of people that, that have it all together, no, it's not. This group right here is messed up being preached to by a guy who's even more messed up than they are. On our best day, we are utter hypocrites. 
On our best day, we set out and say, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore, you know. Oh, I heard them stats about lying. I'm just going to tell the truth from now on. Well, there you lied again. I've said this before. You can't even keep your own standard for your life. January 1st, I'm going to be at the gym four days a week. I'm sure in some culture there's a week that's 50 days. Parking lot's full in January. Come March, where's everybody at? I'm going to just eat this and not eat this. I'm just going to do this and not do this. And we can't even keep our own standard we set for ourselves. How in the world can we keep the righteous standard of God? And so, here's the bad news. God's holiness should terrify us because we are sinful. If you just look at lies alone, we deserve hell. But here's the good news. And we'll end with this. It's always good to end with the good news. Point three. We can't enter into God's presence without a mediator. So, so what's the good news? God's given us a mediator. So back to Exodus 19, what's the picture here? Why is it that Moses can go up the mountain and everybody else can't? Well, why is it that, that he can cross the boundary and no one else can? Is it because Moses was such a good person? So faithful, so righteous? If you've been studying with this, you know that's not the case. Moses was a murderer. So Moses, during that lunchtime gospel conversation, could not say, well, I've never killed anybody. His way. Well, you know, I only killed one person. You know, could have killed a lot more. Now Moses is a murderer. Moses was unfaithful at times. Moses doubted God often. And we see Moses' growth throughout the book of Exodus, but we, we see very quickly, Moses isn't able to go up the mountain because Moses is perfect. No, Moses is able to go up the mountain because Moses is the mediator. Because God has given him this special office and this special role where he goes before God on behalf of man and to man on behalf of God. And Moses is a flawed mediator. He, he, he fails at times. In fact, Moses won't go to the promised land because he's going to fail. But Moses points us towards a mediator who does not fail. And that's where we'll conclude today. We read about that mediator in Hebrews chapter 12. Just again, Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews here, is looking back on Exodus 19, so some of this will sound very familiar to you. But, but then he points us forward to something. Listen to this. This is what he says. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a temptus and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He's referring back to Mount Sinai here. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So where's our hope? Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, 
and the heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirit of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? Go back to the beginning. Adam and Eve sin against God. They're removed from the garden. They have two boys, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. God comes to Cain, and do you remember what He says to him? The blood of your brother cried out to me. Well, what did Abel's blood cry? Murderer. Guilt. Shame. Death. And here the writer of Hebrews says, we've got something so much better. Because now we have the blood of Jesus Christ. And what does the blood of Jesus Christ say to God? Grace. Mercy. Forgiveness. Life. The writer of Hebrews here says, listen, you've got a choice. You can keep trying to go to God through Mount Sinai and friends, it will not go well for you. You can stand at the foot of the mountain all day long and say, but I'm better than most. And the Scripture says, you cross that line and you die because you're not perfect. Or, you can go up the mountain, up Mount Zion because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for I. Because He went to the cross and He died for the liars. And He died for the hypocrites. And He died for those of us who would fail day in and day out. He died on our behalf so that we might enter into the holy presence of God one day. Not as those who come into that presence saying, well, here I am, God. Look what I did. But as those who come covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So back to the question, how do we as liars stand before a holy God? Well, in Mount Sinai, we don't stand long because we deserve death and judgment. But at Mount Zion, we stand covered by the blood of the One who embodied all truth. In fact, that's exactly how Jesus is referred to. John chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What did He say of Himself? John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do a bunch of liars stand before a holy God? <laughs> we stand covered by the blood of the One who never lied. Who was absolutely honest. Who embodies all truth. And we don't stand there and plead our case before God and say, well God, I, I didn't lie that much. <laughs> no, we stand silent as our advocate our brother jesus pleads our case and says oh yeah they're a liar and that's exactly why i died on that cross and my blood covers their shame friends why would you want to go back to mount sinai when you can go to mount zion why would you want to stand before god in shame and guilt and fear deserving death when you can stand covered by the blood of Christ and grace and mercy and have life. And the reason is this. Because you're a stubborn fool. And I am too. 
And the only thing that will break our stubborn pride is for a holy God and His grace towards us to overwhelm us through the power of His Holy Spirit to call us to faith and repentance. And so that's my prayer for us today. As we sing, as we respond, as we consider God's Word, that that we might take to heart this Lord's Day the opportunity that is before us to leave behind the shame and the guilt, to stop trying to live a life where we're just trying to impress everybody, and to be honest before God, to repent of our sin, and to be covered by His grace and His mercy. That's my prayer for us. If you would stand together as I pray for us today. Father, your your word says to us that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. You give us your word. You give us the testimony of your word to help us know who you are. To help us see that that, that you are holy and righteous. And that your righteousness and your holiness, it, it should terrify us because of our sin. But in Christ, we don't have to be terrified. In Christ, we can enter into your presence. In Christ, we can cry out to you, Abba, Father. In Christ, we can be your children and Christ our brother. And so, Father, I pray for us today that that whatever it is that might be hindering any of us from repenting and trusting in Christ, Lord, that, that you would overwhelm us in the power of your Holy Spirit to repent and to trust, to leave behind our our foolish expedition up Mount Sinai and to run to Mount Zion and to Jesus and to the cross. And I pray for those of us who've done that, Lord, but perhaps we're struggling still. We're struggling with a faith based on works. We're we're struggling to still try to look a certain way and, and try to fit a certain mold and try to impress you and others. Lord, help us just to repent of that faith in works. And trust in the grace you've offered us through the gospel of Jesus. Lord, again, I pray for us today. I know today is a hard day for some. I pray, God, that you might comfort them in their time of grief and mourning. And I pray for all of us, Lord, as we sing, as we respond, that you would write eternity on our hearts. And the reminder that it's a day with no more pain, no more suffering, no more grief, no more death. Christ himself said he is making all things new. We pray that you do that work among us today. In Jesus' name, amen.